I am, uh, welcome everyone to the Cato Institute's brief entitled Sustaining the American Energy Renaissance. I am Peter Russo. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute, and I'm glad you could all make it despite this oppressive heat. Um, we have a lengthy program today, so I'm going to get right to some brief introductions. Um, unfortunately, as you may have noticed, Pat Michaels, who is Cato's Director of the Center for the Study of Science, was not able to attend today. However, and instead, we have the very able Joseph Verona. So Joe is the project manager for the newly launched Center for the Study of Science at the Cato Institute. He's a graduate of American University in DC. Uh, Joe spent seven years as a consultant, analyst, and communication specialist to the Department of Energy's Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. And our principal speaker today is Dr. Ned Mamara. Dr. Mamara is a senior geologist, geoscientist, and program manager. He spent the last 30 years working in energy, mineral resources, and energy policy. In the private sector, he worked with several oil companies in Houston, and more recently in government service with several leading scientific and intelligence agencies, including the US Geological Survey and the CIA. Dr. Mamula earned his MS in geosciences from Penn State University, his PhD in petroleum geology from Texas A&M University, and his master's in international public policy and energy from Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. So let's get started and please give a warm welcome to Joe Veruni. All right, that is not gonna work. All right. Um, when I followed my passion into the nexus of energy, environment, and policy, things were quite different than they are today, to say the least. Being a millennial, I matured during the post 9-11 era, and my view of the world was largely shaped by watching my friends shipped out to foreign wars, which seemed conveniently correlated with oil fields. As both a libertarian and a human being, my sensibilities certainly weren't fond of this sort of pointless slaughter. To compound this, I was taught that oil was running out and we needed to switch to other sources of energy, and fast. My professional career has coincided with what has become one of the most fascinating transformations in the way humans power themselves. We've had ups and downs, a fracking boom and an ethanol boondoggle, a private sector whose freedom produced prosperity, and a government doing its best to transform the way we all power our lives. We have reached neither peak oil nor peak rhetoric, and sorting out the facts is oftentimes impossible. If you'd have asked me 10 years ago how we'd have cut carbon emissions, I probably wouldn't have guessed a housing crisis and a glut of domestic fuel production. Looking at the history of energy, which has gone from Don Quixote to massive wind farms, Lardarello to using fracking to create enhanced geothermal systems, and Spindletop to back in, this moment is unique. It is worth noting exactly how unique this is. The need for energy has been one of the driving forces in humanity. In many parts of the world, our fellow humans still live without access to energy. Women must walk miles, unprotected, in very unstable places, to find the dung and wood so they can cook for their children. There are no lights. The, electric the, electricity to <laughs> the electricity to produce books is better spent powering hospitals. And it is wildly unreasonable to expect nations to thrive when children attempting to reach their full potential don't even have the light to study after walking miles to the nearest schools. What we are learning here in America is going to help propel all of humanity into the greatest prosperity our species has ever achieved. Ned has a very unique perspective on how this all played out. 
A wiser man than I, he saw a lot of this coming. And I'm very pleased to have him here so we can all learn the history, the tech, and the future possibilities of this feat of American ingenuity, our new energy renaissance. So please join me in welcoming Ned. Ladies and gentlemen, good to be here. I'm Ned Mamula, and uh, you know, uh, despite what Peter said, uh, there's a lot of folks in here. I suspect uh, the heat has driven you all in here, <laughs> it, it, but that's fine. Uh, the other possibility might be that uh, you were hoping Pat Michaels was here to beat up on, but uh, maybe he'll show up later. <laughs> Listen, I'm glad you're here. Thank you. I really appreciate it, and I mean that sincerely. Uh, I've been uh, working in the field of energy for about 30 years, and uh, I've looked at it from a bunch of different angles. In fact, uh, uh, full disclosure, I'm not now with Cato, but Cato, to their credit, as well as some of the other think tanks in town, have really been banging on this drum. Now, today we're going to talk about the uh, American Energy Renaissance. Next week, Cato will have as a policy forum the case for free markets in energy, and that'll be uh, Rob Bradley, and that'll be at Cato. Last month, threats to the U.S. Energy Renaissance, that was yours truly, and that was at Cato as well. Uh, then there was a book presentation uh, in May by a Cato senior fellow, Johan Norberg, understanding the world's energy needs. The week before that, we had national security implications of new oil and gas production technologies. That was at Cato, featuring Eugene Golds from University of Texas at Austin. A couple months prior to that, Alex Epstein introduced the moral case for fossil fuels, his new book. Prior to that, Cato, don't constrain energy growth, and on and on. And finally, I'll just mention here, many of the things that I'm going to talk about today <clears throat> are actually mirrored in a bill that's going to be reintroduced here, perhaps in 2015, uh, Representative Breitenstein and Ted Cruz on the American Energy Renaissance. It's called the Ameri loosely called the American Energy Renaissance Act, so keep an eye out for that, okay? Okay, so those are some of the things that are happening. Now, um, do me a favor. If you can't hear me or if you can't see this, let me know and we'll make, make uh, amends here. Also, uh, how about leaving me some... Uh, the ham and Swiss and some of those chocolate chips back there. Don't clean out that. All right, I've looked at energy differently. You know, I looked at the science behind it when I was with U.S. Geological Survey in Reston. I got to travel and look at coal, look at oil, look at gas, and really, you know, without any of the politics, I just looked at it. What is it? I looked at the leasing, the permitting, the exploration, the collection of royalties and rentals, 
while I was with Minerals Management, which was actually born out of the USGS. It's a, it's a new agency. Today it's called Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. So. Now, some people might be surprised CIA is interested in energy. Sure, why not? They're interested. They're interested in the geopolitics of it and, of course, national security implications. N not a secret at all. It, you know, many, many people are interested in that. And finally, I spent about seven years in the oil industry in Houston, probably the most rewarding of all. And at one time, I was moving from Houston to London and Baku, Azerbaijan, and back. And I remember there was times I, you know, it was just rushing forward and to try to drink from fire hose, but it was really rewarding. So energy is important, and I want to talk today about it. Now, what is this energy renaissance people keep talking about? There it is right there. I put a slide up for you to see, and I purposely didn't put any words on it, because I want you to understand what it is. This is referred to as the Utica, as in Utica, New York, shale. It is a highly fractured shale. I don't know if there's any geologists out there, but it's a shale. It has a thickness and an expanse, and it's loaded with oil and gas. And when you drill into it in a certain way, and you open those fractures that you see here, the oil and gas flow to the well and up to the surface. You'll see cars pulled over at uh, outcrops looking at different rocks that are exposed. This is a surface exposure. But you need to imagine, for the purpose of today's talk, this underground, six, seven thousand, eight thousand, ten thousand feet down, where the fractures are even tighter and the need to pry them apart is even greater. Okay? So, so this is the idea. We're producing almost half of our oil and gas from shale. It's called shale gas, shale oil. And it's a, all of a sudden thing since 2005. And it's almost overnight, it's, it's, it's taken on a new meaning. Here are some of the questions that I pose and we'll talk about. What is the Renaissance? I told you, it's really, it's exploration and production of shale gas and shale oil. That's what's new. When did it develop and how is it bracketed? I'll get to that in a minute. What is responsible for the resurgence or the, the renaissance? Why? Why all the surging right now? We, we, didn't we have plenty of oil or, or we short or, you know, why all of a sudden now? If we're in a renaissance, how can we sustain that? You know, not only that, how can we expand it? As industry expands, our needs go up, how can we expand it? And finally, the implications, and I'll leave that last and I'm probably going to have you guys chime in and tell me what you think the implications are from your perspective up here on the hill. You probably have more to say about the implications than I do. Now, you know, at CIA we used to, we used to present what's called the bluff, bottom line up front, you have to have that. It's also known as the eleva elevator brief. You get in the elevator with a director on the seventh floor, by the time that car gets down to his limo, you have to disgorge everything he needs to know before he gets in the car and the door is slammed in your face. So here, if you have to leave here now, 
This is what you need to know. These are the takeaways as you leave this room today. Number one, the what. In the past 10 years, as I said, 2005, there's been an explosion in technology of directional drilling, horizontal drilling, and hydrofracking, otherwise known as fracking. And that, combined with some offshore uh, developments, constitutes that ability to produce these shales and other oil deposits. That is your en energy renaissance. What else? Well, the recent spike in production has come mainly from shale oil, as I said. And most of that, believe it or not, comes from state and, state and private lands, not federal lands, not at all. And that's a problem, as we'll show later. The so what? The so what is, as of this year, America is now the number one producer of oil and gas in the world. I couldn't be prouder, I couldn't be happier to be part of this profession and this career and to see how we struggled back in the 70s and gas lines and look, look where we are today. But we combined the cutting edge EMP, that's exploration and production, EMP is exploration. We combined that with the idea of the vastness of shale. There's more shale in this country and around the world than you can ever, ever imagine. So the idea of peak oil is absolutely as Mythbusters would say, busted, big time. Finally, implications. Guys, you know what they are. Imagine, you have a tsunami of technology coming, and you marry that up with the hydrocarbon-rich oil shale, or shale gas and shale oil. And basically, it's pointing the way toward energy independence. I didn't say we're gonna get there. Listen carefully, I said it's pointing the way. Whether we get there is up to us, and whether we get there is really up to the people who we elect. And I think, again, that's an implication that you guys, I don't have to spend any time with you on that. Opportunity analysis, okay. To sustain this miracle that's going on now, what do we do? Well, we must, as doctors say, first, do no harm. Okay, we have to prevent any federal rules and regulations, you know, from getting in there and bollocksing up something that's working otherwise well. And some of you might say, oh, listen to this guy, he's great. But look, at there's local regs, state regs, federal regs, all kind of regs. I mean, why would you duplicate and triplicate some of these things? You know, if you have regs that are working, they work. But there's something more sinister going on. We must demand better stewardship from our federal government. This government owns two, uh, uh, one third of the continental United States, plus Alaska, in land area. And for them to narrow down or choke off leasing and exploration and the sale of those energy supplies on that land is really cheating us out of royalty and rental to us and our American national debt. You know, that, that, that money could be used, but it's sitting there for what I don't know. Well, I do, this is not a political talk. Okay, what is it, when did it happen? 
1970, we hit the peak of about nine and a half million barrels a day production in this country. And ever since then, we've been on a steady downturn for the, some of the reasons I mentioned. The amount of federal land being choked off gradually, the amount of leasing going down, the amount of permitting going down, supply going up, demand going down. While the layoffs in the oil industry, been there, done that, seen that. It's a real boom-bust industry. All of a sudden, in 2010, boom. Now, people say, when did oil start? I mean, look, I'm a Pennsylvanian, and I know I've been to Drake's Well. That was the first uh, oil. You know, I've also been to Azerbaijan, where oil actually forms lakes, natural lakes. I mean, some people would scream if they saw it, but it's nature's condition. Okay, this, this is as it turns out, the first blowout in history. This is the first American gusher, and it happened at a place called Spindletop at the beginning of the last century near Beaumont, Texas. So this began the energy, the energy journey that we're on, okay? And it steadily increased till 1970 and then crash. And now, 2005, we're taking off again. Only this time, there's no end to the supply because of the shale. This gushed for about two weeks, about 80,000 barrels a day before they brought it under control. And it blew about six or seven tons of steel right out of the hole. Fortunately, no one got hurt or killed. But it, was, uh, it started the, uh, the whole energy journey that we're on. Okay. Uh, the surge, again, let's look at the technology side of it, and that's what I'm good at. The ones that made the most difference are, and you may have heard of these, you may not have, but 3D seismic, okay? I, could, I don't have a slide. All it is is a bunch of squiggles, and there would be no point to show you, but it's, it's what geophysicists pull out of the ground by putting energy in. They look at it, and they get an idea of the structure's uh, subsurface four-dimensional seismic, brand new stuff. Not only are you looking three-dimensionally, but you're going back in time. And that's new and exciting, and I'll show you an example of that. Geospatial imagery analysis. A lot of you may have had that in college, where you're looking at certain satellite images and you're extracting information for exploration's sake. Directional drilling is big. And one uh, type of directional drilling is called horizontal drilling. It's what it is, horizontal, I'll show you in a minute. And finally, that, that evil, nasty thing called hydraulic fracturing, which I'll show you isn't as evil as people think it is. Now, here's what I want you to also walk out of here with. If, there's not, but if there was a Nobel Prize in geology or geoscience, any one of these or any combination of these would have won hands down, not even close. Can you imagine the money generated, the lives saved, the progress made by the energy discovered by these techniques? You can't deny that, no matter what side of the argument you're on. So there is no Nobel Prize, but I like to think there, there is. Here, real quick, this is 4D seismic, where you are in 
say, ExxonMobil's Energy Development Laboratory in Houston, Texas, blah, blah, blah. So you're in the room. It's not this big, but it's pretty big. And you actually get inside the rocks. You're, you're, you're inside them. And you do a reconstruction. And then you, the, the, uh, the computer will step back in time. Because you have all the seismic records, it will step back in time. You just you reach over the keyboard and you tell it. Uh, this is this is this is Apollo. This is this is this is every bit high tech as you can imagine. This 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 is space shuttle type stuff. All right. This is going on. Space shuttle is not. So think about that. Directional drilling. All right. I want to drill under Mrs. Smith's property. She doesn't want me there. I want to drill. I want her oil. She doesn't want me there, but she would sell it if I could get it otherwise. I'll put down a well over here on Mr. Jones, and I go over there and get it, bring it out. And this is very valuable, especially if you want to put two, three, four multiple wells on one pad and maximize, uh, actually, sorry, minimize your environmental footprint. See what I mean? Companies actually put rails, put a drilling rig on there, drill a hole, move down, drill another one, move down, drill another one. You can have as many holes on a pad as you want, and you keep the environmental damage. It's not damage, but you keep the footprint to a minimum. This is exciting, and this is fairly new. Uh, in a fractured reservoir, I showed that to you. Remember the first slide? That was all fractured. And if I'm in a fractured reservoir, I want to take advantage of those fractures. There they are. I want to be drilling across them. So when they're propped open, the oil and gas comes to me, to the wellbore. That's called the pay zone, the thickness of it. But if I open the fractures, then I can produce the entire pay zone. And then when you marry up hydraulic fracturing and directional drilling or horizontal drilling, this is what you get. You put down a well, you inject water with sand, that's it. Sometimes they'll put a, a, something called guargum in there or some kind of other chemical that's non-toxic. You'll explode the rocks, you'll open those cracks, and you'll pump it out, and then you'll pump out the oil and gas. And the neat thing about this is it maximizes the amount of oil and gas in the ground. You cannot imagine all the oil and gas left in the ground from wells that were never properly developed. You know, the Russians were great at that. They would go in and drill and pump like crazy, and the, the rocks will shut down. You know, you have to slowly pull it out using porosity and permeability law. Otherwise, you're going to have a vapor lock, and, you, and then they say, oh, that's it, and then they move on. So this is uh, in the Marcella Shale is almost a household word, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Ohio, West Virginia. Okay, fracking is opening cracks in shale. I showed you the shale. And basically, you use sand in a water mix, put it down there, put it under pressure. And as you draw the pressure in the water away, the sand props the cracks open, and then the oil moves toward the wellbore. Now, this is the one I told you guys about earlier. This is shale gas production as of last year, and it shows you these formations and how much of the total shale gas they're responsible for. And a lot of these things here are almost household words. Marcellus, here's the Bakken, so on, the Barnett, and so on and so forth. 
But look at the ramp up from 2005. It just, boom, explodes. And from 2010, from 2010, it just takes off like crazy. So there you go. And the Marcellus is number one, and it's huge. I'll show you in a minute. Okay, now, going out to 2040, this is what it looks like, where you're going to have shale gas taking, being responsible for the lion's share of production and all these other forms of gas from other rock types coming in, as you see them here. It's just an estimate, but it's probably pretty accurate. Okay, this is what's exciting, or should be. You see all the shale distributed all over the United States. This is the one I was telling you about, and Canada and Mexico. So this is not all of it, but this gives you an idea how vast these rocks are. They're all, I won't say dripping with, but they're all have potential hydrocarbon in them. And they're all accessible, but not all accessible on federal lands, and that's part of the beef. People would like to have that federal cooperation, and then the government collect that royal and rental, the royalties from the producers. Okay, uh, I've shown you this before, since 05. Oh, I wanted to let you know that the technology I'm talking about today has really only been tried successfully by four countries, four other countries. You know, we are so blessed. We have this technology and we have the resources. We married them up. That's why we are in the Renaissance. Canada tried it. They have a long way to go. China. Russia, no, and the only other country is Argentina. They've tried it, you know, not much. So we're way, way ahead for the time being. If I ever saw an implication for technology, trade, what have, what have you, there it is right there. We'll get back to that. Phase two. So I, told, I showed you phase one was all the directional drilling, all that. Phase two is exploration, technology, using drones, big data, wireless, these are all terms you've heard of. Now they're being applied in the oil field. Down hole, you have nanotechnology for drilling muds, monitoring fractures using cameras, which you would think, how they see in a, how can they see in mud? But they can. Uh, seismic while drilling, these are, and finally down here, they're working on laser drilling. Can you imagine if, if, if lasers are perfected to do drilling? It's going to be uh, icing on the cake. Now, phase two, I just showed it to you, but more than typical energy companies are getting involved. It's going wide and deep. Here's a good example. None other than General Electric, who's not known for anything related to oil and gas, is very, very involved all of a sudden. They're spending a quarter billion dollars on a research center in Oklahoma. It's going to open next year. And they're going to look at technologies that companies need, like production, wealth, construction, energy, water, carbon dioxide. GE makes valves, piping, uh, and all of the systems that the companies need to do these manifold, many wells on one pad and all the other. So they're involved. Now here's some examples of phase two. Wireless helps when you have a rig separated by an ocean, and then you're 10,000 feet below that. Wireless is awfully helpful. How are you going to get the drill stream, the drill pipe back in the hole? 
wireless and also GPS. Where is that rig on the face of the earth and is it right over the well? And of course GPS is important, otherwise if you don't line up you've lost the well. Seismic while drilling, this is incredible because if you have drilling going on, and it's, I won't touch this, if the drilling's here, and the seismic returns are from down here, you can actually know what you're going to encounter before you encounter it, if you follow what I'm saying. It's, it's a way to see into the future before you get there. Geosteerable means, and this is a, this is a drill bit, and this is a drill string. I can, with some joysticks up from up top, I can steer this drill bit whatever way I want. If I want to go directionally or horizontally or this way or that way, I can steer that. I'm in total control. In fact, if I find that shale that I keep showing you and I want to drill into it and stay into it, and I can do that. And this distance here is almost 10,000 feet, if you can imagine. What would you rather do? Punch through this way, maybe a couple hundred feet, or turn your drill bit this way and go across about 10,000 feet and produce that? That's why you have that big spike in 2005. Or one of the reasons. Seismic exploration with wireless, even on shore, you can drop these things out of a helicopter, drop, throw them out of a Jeep, and they'll sit there and do what you want them to do, and then you don't even have to go back and get them if you don't want them. As if that weren't enough, the icing on the cake, phase one, phase two, now the icing here is really the computer power and the software that's being written specifically for exploration companies, never before happened. All of a sudden, people were saying, wow, these guys are big users of software. We'll write, we'll write it for them. And because of that, the, here's some of the trends. You have a steady increase in the number of successful wells. You have oil and gas discoveries that are very, very predictable. How are we doing on time? And, you know, and this makes me feel good. I've spent a life working on this. It, is, and when I was in grad school, it was actually a little bit science, a little bit art. The art is gone. This is all brute science. There is no art. We know exactly where we are in space and time. We know what's there. You just pull it up. And the discovery rate went from 5% to 10% 30 years ago, which isn't that long. Today it's 60 to 70 percent, and this is unclassified. I'm sure companies are not talking about certain things. That's called a tight hole, or they'll restrict information down for their own uses. So these are bare bones numbers, and they're only going to get better. So some of the milestones. So I've shown you the technology. I haven't mentioned anything about policy yet, but here's some of the milestones. We've gotten back to our, our, our former high of 9.5 million barrels a day, reached in 1970. We're back there now. Our import requirements have fallen pretty sharply, and they should keep falling. We outproduced Saudi Arabia last year, and I think last month we blew past Russia. And they're sitting over there, hapless and hopeless. They have shale like you wouldn't believe, but they can't get, it, they can't get to it the way we can. 
And as I said, we're on a path. Please don't misunderstand. We're not, we didn't achieve it. But we're on a path toward energy independence. And what it means is that it's up to us if we're going to make it there or not. This is that previous point. I keep going back to this because it's so staggering. Here we are in 1970, and here we are here, 2015. So we're back, we're back and it's only going to go higher. Imports, when I said they're falling, this is what I mean. We have more energy than any of these countries in the world. And on this slide, it counts coal in addition to oil, gas, oil, shale, and a few other things. But even without coal, you know, we have it. Or even if we didn't have, say, the resource base, we have the technology to get out what we do have, which is going to take a long time to develop the map of the U.S. that I showed you all the shale basins. Here's some other milestones of note. Look, production is shaping the economy, and I'm, I don't want to get into that. I'm not an economist. Uh, many natural gas industries are popping up because it's, it's, it's abundant. And... Uh, of course, natural gas is going to bump out coal here pretty soon as far as power generation. And actually, here's a consequence that environmentalists should like, and that is the fact that, you know, the, the carbon dioxide emissions are going down, down, down. So do we need to have new CO2 rules? Maybe not. I mean, if they're already headed down, is it that they're not going down fast enough? And residential and transportation is, the uses is getting more, more uh, uh, efficient. And of course, everybody enjoys a lower price, although I see gasoline creeping back up a little, a little bit more. Okay, let's talk a little bit about policy. How are we on time? Uh, you got five minutes. That's all I need. That's all I need. I'm not a policy guy. I'm not an economist. I'm none of that. But let me just offer some things to you that I know to be factual. We have this renaissance, so far it's working great. Is there anything out there that could threaten it? You know, if I'm the oil companies, I'm a roadrunner. Is there a wily coyote out there around the bend that might do something that causes me to pull back, put my rigs in storage and not produce for a while? One thing could be a scheme. If you, if, you, if you present me with a scheme, some kind of a, like a scheme, a carbon scheme, and you say, I'm going to reduce, you're going to reduce your carbon, that could maybe cause reduction in production. So could any of these federal regulations, and there's so many of them pending for this year and next year. You guys know this, okay? Uh, okay. I call it a blizzard of regulations coming down the, the path. <clears throat> and they're pending. I hope they stay pending or go away. Some of them are duplicative. They, 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 you don't need that, okay? Finally, the stewardship issue. No one can argue that. You have federal lands that should be produced. Guess what? If I produce energy out of a block of federal land, I'm gone. Then, according to multiple use understanding, multiple land use, then I can come in and make a recreation site or I can mine copper or I can have timbering 
you don't just do one thing on land and that's all. It's multiple land use. That's really the way land should be used and that's part of what I mean when I say stewardship. Okay, I'm not going to get into this, but carbon has many assumptions that may or may not happen and it has also some unintended consequences. You know, you're assuming people are going to modify their habits. You're assuming companies are going to change technology, cleaner technology. Everybody's in favor of cleaner. But right now, natural gas is pretty clean and it's going to get cleaner. And until we have other forms that can take its place, then we don't have to get wrapped around the axle so badly. This one is unworkable. Because a federal blanket fracking law or reg doesn't work. Fracking is different in different parts of the country. I showed you the map of the US. Those are called geologic basins. Every basin is unique. Fracking in each basin has to be done according to the rule, not the rules, but the geologic conditions in that basin, all right? State governments are way, way, way ahead, trust me on this. They, they know how to do environment operations, royalty rental collection. They are perfectly capable, thank you very much. Each state has its own fracking. New York, missing the boat, they're missing hundreds of millions of dollars because they put a ban on it. Let me go back, I don't think I covered. Yeah, I mean, look, there's even now waterless fracking where, you know, they put something, they'll, they'll prop the cracks open and bring the sand out and it'll sit, bring the water out and it'll sit there or the other waterless material, they'll use air pressure. So the technology is moving ahead so fast, maybe faster than some federal regulators can keep up with it. Here's another thing that's unsustainable. Look, since President Reagan, look at the drop in the leases issue. I mean, that's not right. A lot of these lands are withdrawn. Tens and thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres withdrawn, production irrever irrevocably denied. No one knows what's in those lands doesn't make sense because we're going to overdraw our account as far as natural resources by not understanding what we're doing. Here's something else unsustainable. This is federal production in the negative numbers. There on the private side is way, way up. And I'm happy for people, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, who sold their land to, to BP or Shell or Chevron, and they're getting a big check. But we, the taxpayers, can get a check too toward that national debt or however from production on federal lands that should be produced. I'll tell you a real quick side story. When I worked for the USGS in mining, I remember 40 acre tracks. And I remember you would have mining on 40 acres, not allowed here, mining here, not allowed here, mining here. When you look at an aerial photograph, it looked like a waffle iron. <laughs> you, had, you had buttes sticking up, valleys going, it was ugly, just ugly. Okay. Now these trends, I'm not gonna belabor them, but look at them, they're all negative. Total leases, total, uh, total new leases, number of leases in effect, and 
total acres all on the downturn. Offshore, basically off limits. 87% of it is off limits. Chukchi Sea was just approved, and the Gulf of Mexico has been the real workhorse offshore, still is. How to sustain it? Technology and stewardship. Okay. States are good. States know what they're doing, especially your western states. That's where the federal lands are. That's where they're doing a phenomenal job. An exploration permit from BLM takes almost a year. Same permit from North Dakota takes about 10 days. Uh, yeah, come on. All right. 30 years, 10 years, five years, carbon, uh, uh, the hydrocarbon shales, the success rate, and the energy independence. So this would be another takeaway for your bosses, okay? Boom, 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 boom. This hasn't, this didn't happen yesterday, didn't happen five years ago, didn't happen 10, happened about 30, and then it just went up gradually, and then in 2005, it went up steeply. And I told you what I perceive some of the threats would be. Now, here's the Wiley Coyote. He wants to cite in on federal regulation, what I'm calling over-regulation, and basically it may have some unintended consequences that we don't really need right now. Put it another way, why gamble on something that's working? You know, it's probably not a good idea. These things aren't necessary now. Every state can handle their own, and I think it's gonna be a better result then the feds trying to tell the state of Connecticut what to do, same rule applies for the state of Arizona. 